Welcome back to the Iceberg of Economics. This is going to be part three of nine. Uh, we'll just get straight on to it. Uh, the first term now that we're under the surface that I'm going to discuss is the one I probably have the least understanding of is syndicalism. Syndicalism is a radical semi-anarchist, semi um socialist it's kind of a mix of both where that the government and most businesses and institutions are all controlled by unions um, if you wanted to say this in jest you can argue that the education system in the state of california is syndicalist by that if the U teachers union has a lot of power in deciding how things go there but really on a more serious note it's the idea that you would basically have a general strike where union leaders across all major industries would coordinate and all shut down together to effectively seize control of the government by saying we're not going to go back to work and we're not going to produce anything unless if the government steps down and allows union leaders and just the unions in general to make decisions on production and rule of law and everything like that. Uh, this is very chaotic in nature, an ideology like this, and it did have some traction, particularly in France, the Iberian Peninsula, and Latin America. However, by the end of World War II, syndicalism died out effectively across the world, and the main reason for the death of syndicalism was either a um, authoritarian inst uh, on the left side of the aisle basically uh, co-opted syndicalism into becoming more authoritarian style communism as you've seen in the eastern bloc and china and the post-world war ii world where in the west you saw living standards go up even for the working classes to such a relatively high level that the working classes can now afford to be um, consumers in the capitalist economy and now have a, and investors in the financial markets and homeowners and have more of a skin in the game and a stake in the society. And as a result, uh, syndicalism lost its popularity because a lot of the same workers who would be the, the source to threaten a shutdown of society now have a reason not to want to shut down society and have unions control everything because they have a stake in it and they benefit from the free market economy. Uh, I think syndicalism or neo-syndicalist ideas could pop up in the event that you see um, too much redistribution up the wealth curve and you see a lot of younger generations never buy property or never have a meaningful balance in their 401k and may get start to get more sympathetic to this and other uh, more radical left-wing ideas. But for now, syndicalism is in the dustbins of history. Uh, the next thing we're going to talk about in the iceberg of economics is central planning. Why central planning is really the idea that you could use a combination of government hire bureaucrats and academics and policymakers can decide how 
the economy should play out and with this planning uh, they can create better outcomes than if it was done entirely with the free market. Uh, the most common example of this is the Soviet Union and a lot of the uh, communist countries in the 20th century where you had bureaucrats literally deciding how much bread there was on the shelf and what the salary for every profession in the economy was and that resulted into a bunch of inefficiencies which was really the main problem for central planning to that degree. But central planning doesn't have to be just for the whole economy in a totalitarian sense. Uh, you could argue that the Federal Reserve is effectively central planning the economy by determining the price of money because the price of money impacts what loans are viable and what loans are not viable and therefore what projects can receive capital and what not and also affects asset prices like the price of housing is very contingent interest rates. The price of the stock market is heavily contingent on interest rates and the, Fed, uh, the Federal Market Committee is 12 governors who basically decide what the cost of money should be. That is central planning. It's, it's not the entire economy but it effectively is for the financial system and there are several other regulatory bodies that have similar powers even in so-called free market economies to put a lot of central planning into how their sub-industries work. A good example of this was the interview I did with Austin Walters discussing the degree of central planning within the healthcare industry which has led to a lot of the inefficiencies within the healthcare industry. Uh, the next topic we're going to be talking about central planning, I already hinted at this, is communism. Uh, communism is the idea that uh, you have no private property effectively. Uh, this is communism is and the idea is that proto-communist idea has been around really since John Jacques Rousseau and the emotions that drive communism have been around since the dawn of time, mainly envy. But um, it really got formalized as a defined ideology through Karl Marx's The Communist Manifesto and Das Kapital. And it had a lot of appeal to people because in a world that got more secular, communism was promising this idea of heaven on earth where there wouldn't be greedy capitalist business owners and wealthy elites who own everything. There would be everybody would have everything except there wouldn't be any ownership. Everybody would just share everything out of the goodness of their hearts. And it would, everybody would be prosperous and everything would be fair and everybody would be equal. Uh, in practice, it didn't really work that way. Um, in mostly authoritarian communist regimes, uh, what happened ultimately was that the political elites still remained on top. They were just a new type of political elites with a new political ideology. But since you didn't really have market forces making the economy efficient, or really drive have any incentive to drive growth, uh, everybody else became poor. And that was really the flaw of communism. And also there's the calculation problem, which I mentioned in the central planning tidbit, is that it's hard for bureaucrats to basically accurately determine how much bread there should be in every single grocery store in every part of your country, or what should the salary be of every single profession without creating shortages or gluts for overpaying one group of people relative to the other. And if you pay everybody 
the same amount of money no matter what they do for a living, which is a goal of communism. It's for each they for each gives to their ability and takes what they need. Uh, you have a lot of disincentives for more skilled people to produce and you have more incentives for people to do jobs that or simply not participate in the authoritarian communist countries you had to work or um, you were basically just cut out of the system or jailed depending on where we're talking about but like in the ideal sense and you didn't really have that type of punishment which you wouldn't in a what would be a true communist society according to the ideologues here you would have a heavy disincentive for people just to shirk and not participate because there's no benefit you get the same benefits as if you do participate even if you don't and that's also one of the, the flaws of communism uh, so yeah it it this ideology was most popular in countries with um, very stratified um, social hierarchies where um, they accelerate quickly to the market economy before um, they switch to communism and there's a lot of disruptions and there are a lot more losers than winners and they use this collective force to uh, to win but the thing is is that if it wasn't really for the Russian Revolution succeeding and to get into the causes of the Russian Revolution and why they were able to succeed when other similar revolutions failed in other parts of Europe and in the Americas at the time. Uh, it was a whole nother topic and that's more of a history topic. But I think that the implicit military and financial support from the Soviet Union once they did flip communist was really the big driver for a lot of these other countries turning. If they didn't have the backing of the Soviet Union, I don't think communism would have spread nearly as far as it did in the peak um, shortly after World War II. But yeah, that's my comments on communism. And socialism, according to the Communist Manifesto, and is the transition stage between communism, which would effectively be an anarchist state with no government, but everybody just voluntarily contributes their peace to society and splits everything evenly and create their heaven on earth. But the step in between is socialism where you have the government seize control of all of the businesses and all the means of production. And you have, it's usually authoritarian, but it theory could be democratic um, where the government will be the one who picks the decides where to allocate all the resources of the economy. And uh, the difference from a social market economy that I mentioned before is that in a social market economy, private business owners still own the businesses. There still is a private sector. Whereas in a truly socialist economy, there would not be a private sector. Uh, everything would be effectively controlled by the state and owned by the state. And this would just be a transition that the state would do this until people got used to this new system and then gradually the state would deteriorate and people would naturally just be adapted to a more communist mindset and it's become self-sustaining. Uh, like by this definition of socialism, a lot of the 
communist bloc during the Cold War was effectively socialist. Um, democratic socialism is really social market economy. Uh, democratic socialism, the idea that was popularized by Bernie Sanders in his 2016 and 2020 uh, elections, that you can democratically vote for a more socialist economy, which you have more welfare, higher taxation, more government regulation and control, and arguably even nationalizing some industries. Uh, some countries in Europe actually did go this far and nationalized a lot of industries. India was also a country that was went pretty far on the socialist side where they outright owned a lot of parts of the, of the private sector and our different industries. And you have some countries where certain sectors are nationalized and socialized, such as the energy industry in Mexico. But in the 80s, the rest started to heavily deregulate and exit out of these. Uh, the most um, aggressive of these moves was the U.S. and the U.K. under Reagan and Thatcher, where they sold off a lot of state-owned industries to make their economies more efficient. But yeah, that's socialism. The main difference between socialism and social market economy is ownership, is direct ownership versus just high taxes. Next, we're going to discuss rent control. Uh, rent control, by definition, is when a jurisdiction puts an effective cap on the amount a landlord can charge in rent to tenants. Uh, this can be done in a variety of ways. It can be a hard cap or a hard rent control where you just can't increase prices, period. You can have rent controls where you cannot increase prices by a fixed amount. Uh, you can have rent control where rents are not allowed to increase more than CPI or CPI plus a spread. Uh, or you can have just a maximum of what you can raise it by that that's fairly high, which diminishes the power of rent control. And you've seen different examples of these across all jurisdictions. Uh, the ones with the most onerous levels of rent control are New York, San Francisco, and Los Angeles in the United States. But recently they've passed um, rent controls in general across the state of California for apartments where it is CPI plus 5% as a cap, which is fairly wide it's but like in a time with extreme housing tightness uh, it could cause um, a lot of um, inoptimal outcomes like what happened the last couple years due to a, sh a high shock in rent inflation where you saw rents going up at one point almost 20 percent year over year uh, the reason rent control is probably one of the most flawed economic policies out there and has one of the poorest empirical track records. And prior to when housing became a major political issue in the last decade, in terms of rent costs particularly among millennials, uh, it was pretty unanimous for economists to um, criticize rent controls and denounce them. But now you're starting to see economists on the left um, sympathize with it because as I've mentioned before, with economics, uh, it's not just left-wingers who do this. Right-wingers have done this too um, with the, the idea if you could cut taxes and you could generate enough growth automatically that you don't need to cut spending to compensate it if they want to play um, 
critique economists on both sides here. Uh, the point being is uh, you've got uh, rent control, the things that people will create their economic policies and solutions and ideology based on a political goal they're trying to accomplish. So that's why rent control is no longer a consensus bad idea. Uh, there's a reason why it was a consensus bad idea is because it creates a lot of negative incentives in the real estate market. One, it depresses um, the values of properties in rent-controlled areas because if you know that your tenants are stuck in rent control and you can't really evict them unless there are very extraordinary exceptions such as if you want to own or occupy the place for an extended period of time, uh, then the cash flows are not going to be high enough to justify what like the purchase price is. So people will have to pay a lower price to be compensated for that. But if that was the only problem, I wouldn't really be that strongly against rent control. Uh, the main problem is what it does to tenants. One, um, it discourages people from moving. Um, and that, as a result, tightens the supply of remaining apartments in a city. So say, for example, you have rent control passed 20 years ago and rent inflation is way higher than what the maximum amount increases under the rent control is. So anybody who got assigned a lease and wants to stay in that city has, has not moved because if they move, they're going to have to pay market rate, which will be much higher um, because the market rate does move with inflation, real inflation housing, not the rent control level. It really, the rent control only kicks in after, um, at least in the way it works in American cities. I think maybe there's other countries maybe they have hard rent controls. But hard rent controls have their own sets of problems. Well, mainly that there'd be no incentive to develop property or to maintain property. And even in softer rent controls, that are there still is no incentive to maintain property because if you're not getting compensated the fair value, you might as well let the apartment degrade and not cover maintenance beyond whatever's the government mandated minimums because if the person doesn't like it and doesn't want to stay, then if they move out, you actually benefit from that because then you could raise the rates back to market rate. But the main problem is people don't move out and therefore that shrinks the supply. And so the remaining people who are trying to move into a city therefore have to pay more because there is a tightness in supply that there wouldn't be if there was a more liquid market for rentals. So basically the people who benefit are the people who were there before the rent controls or live in their place for five plus years. And anybody who either moves around a lot, either due to different jobs or graduating from college and moving to a new city or your family gets bigger so you can't stay in the studio apartment anymore and have to get a bigger place, they are the losers of rent control. And on the aggregate, the losers of the rent control are a lot larger in numbers than the few winners. Like I remember when I lived in San Francisco, I hear this story about people would move into like a three bedroom apartment in North Beach, which is a fairly nice neighborhood in the city, at least back when I lived there. And they would pay $900 a month for this apartment. Um, they got in and they moved in in the 80s when it was maybe like 
that much. And now with their caps and rent controls, maybe their rent is being gotten from $900 a month to $1,200 a month. Whereas if you didn't have rent control and you wanted to get that on the market, that same apartment would be $6,000 a month now. And that is just example, like just like an anecdote, but for a broader problem is that the dis the rent control basically disincentivizes people to move and just artificially restricts a market that a lot of these cities pass rent controls because their markets were tight to begin with and people were complaining about high cost of living. And so the politicians oh, why don't we cap the rent to help solve this problem? But really it does, it just makes an already tight housing market worse. You have less incentive to develop the property because you can't raise rents with your costs uh, or with market forces and you have less incentive to maintain your property. So that's why you see a lot of older dilapidated properties, especially on the inside in some of these rent controlled cities. So overall, it's an idea that comes from the right place in the heart, but practically just doesn't work. Uh, next one I'm going to talk about is full reserve banking. I already discussed this in the surface level where we talked about fractional reserve banking. It's the same thing except every dollar in the bank is backed by a dollar in the bank. So there is no money multiplier effect. Uh, the main upside of this is that the banking system is a lot more stable because you can't have a bank run if everybody's money is always in the bank. The downside is lending in this environment would be prohibitively expensive because the money supply would be a lot lower. And therefore, since banks have to be paid back on that and there's really no like liquidity out there, it has to be everything in the bank has to be fully backed then in order for a bank to even consider taking such a risk of capital impairment on their loans they would have to lend at very high interest rates which you can argue could be a good thing if all these loans were just credit card debt or student loans and frivolous majors or other more wasteful parts of money but a lot of businesses need loans to get started and grow and um, basically there'd be no mortgage market in that environment either because the mortgage interest rates would be so high nobody would be able to afford to borrow to buy a house and therefore anybody want to buy a house would have to pay, have to pay for it in cash which would either means housing prices would be a lot lower and or people would just be lifelong renters and there just be a landlord class that owns all the real estate. So like, you're basically treading off removing the business cycle for slower growth in a full reserve banking environment. Um, I mean, fractional reserve banking didn't really come from legislation. It was just market forces that banks said, hey, we have all this money and not everybody's going to come and take it back at the same time and so they took a little risk and lent on it. Uh, in fact actually reserve requirements were a response to banks perform reserve requirements having way too low of a fraction of their banks and demand of their reserves and demand deposits available. And so that it's if anything, if you're going to have uh, a full reserve banking system 
it wouldn't be like what libertarians say in a free market would have would be full reserve banking no full reserve banking would have to be heavily um, legislated and regulated by the government because the bankers would have incentives to deviate even if it's just by a small amount due to just the upside potential of having much more capital available to lend when nobody else is willing to lend due to having um, sticking to their full reserve banking commitments. Uh, the next one I'm going to talk about is environmental economics, which is kind of the same idea as green growth. It seems like a lot of these on the iceberg is really just um, talking about economic theories to justify factoring in the negative externalities of the environment and climate change. And that's what environmental economics is. It talks about how um, the market fails to, on a climate and or environmental adjusted basis, to have a market optimal outcome there. It's, the markets are more likely to create negative externalities via pollution because money today is especially when interest rates are low is um you want or i mean sorry when interest rates are high you'd rather have the money today than the money tomorrow um you may not be alive really long enough to benefit or i guess suffer in this case from the negative externality and then also i think environmental economics also discuss deals with the tragedy of the commons where you have a common property resource and since nobody owns it, there's no reason to protect it and operate in a sustainable way. An example would be like an open pasture that's not fenced off and all the ranchers go have their cows feed on that pasture because they could keep their grass for themselves on the property they own. They'd rather have it in the open, eat their cows eat in the open pasture. The problem is every rancher is going to think this way and therefore pretty soon that pasture is going to be um, completely barren and have no grass in it at all because nobody really managed to uh, maintain the proper level of um, grass or to allow um, nature to do its thing and have it grow gradually and not to be overgrazed. Um, the solution to that was, again, private property. If it's your property, you have incentive to take care of it better and make sure that you don't overgraze your property because otherwise your cows are going to have nothing to eat or you're going to have to import hay from another farm at a much more expensive cost. I mean, I didn't really, this wasn't tragedy of the commons, but I think I'm going to include that in parentheses here because we talked about effectively environmental economics when I was discussing green growth. And then the last one we're going to talk about in this section of the economics iceberg are our worker cooperatives, which worker cooperatives are basically the organization that would run the world in a syndicalist system. A worker cooperative is the idea of a company that is self-managed and owned by its workers. And I mean, they only have employee-owned businesses today a lot of the companies who like practically smaller businesses where the business owners and the founders are the only people who work there. 
you have profit sharing agreements and stock option compensation for a lot of technology and big publicly traded companies where and startups where like you have you compensate the employees at startups less up front but in exchange they get equity so if the company grows they will do better and take some of the winnings from that but these are a little bit more differently these are just basically the idea that you have um, you have every corporate decision be voted on by the workers like it's a government or a state election or something like that uh, even the companies who can't um, give corporate stock options and treasure a stock to the compensation to their employees do not give enough that they have enough shares to really influence policy whereas in a worker cooperative in the old school sense of it it would literally just be divided evenly by all the workers there wouldn't really be management or if there was it'd be like a politician is now they're elected in elections for a fixed term and they would do what in the best interest of the workers but what i know about worker cooperatives historically the idea was a more direct democracy style for companies and um, they have um, had some success of sticking around longer than other companies and um, because they're less likely to vote on not because necessarily they're better but they're less likely to vote on approving themselves being acquired uh, and usually in acquisitions you have layoffs of redundant workers so you can see why a worker cooperative would vote against its company being acquired because some of the synergies would be those workers losing their jobs and then you also probably have a you have lower pay gaps in worker cooperatives than you do in traditional companies as well um, mainly because again since people are voting on pay and voting on every major decision people aren't going to vote for management to have excessively higher pay than they are uh, because why would you do that <laughs> like you see how unpopular it is to raise salaries for congressmen in the United States um, you can see how that work on a business level too um, and so yeah the reason why again these don't really work that well is because they're not really the key. it's hard to make longer-term strategic decisions and this is also the flaws of public companies who have to report earnings every quarter have similar pressure from their shareholders if you have everything voted on election for the workers and there's also an agency problem even if the workers are shareholders the workers have different interests than what would be a for-profit shareholder would and those conflict of interest really holds back um, worker cooperatives it's probably why you don't see that many like major large worker cooperatives in the modern era I mean they do have some in in Europe and most notably in Italy and Spain and France kind of the same countries where syndicalism was popular but yeah I mean they're generally not um, major movers and shakers in the business world and they're not really the source of dynamic growth startups or not really worker cooperatives either but yeah if it's a very well established industry with not 
too much growth, they could work. But again, you're trading off similar to social market economy. You are trading off upside potential and long-term thinking in exchange for um, worker harmony and more um, social stability or just less tension between um, workers and management and workers amongst themselves. Uh, that concludes part three. Um, well, now we're going to keep getting deeper.